Shin. That's correct. Which is also the Spock symbol. Yes, the Spock symbol. Okay, it's two fists right here. Sorry, Charlie. That's it. That's tough. But uh, okay, two front teeth is what it is sometimes meant. It's sharp, press, eat, and two. So rulers persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I want for your salvation, O Lord. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I obey your precepts and your statutes, for all my ways are known to you. Hey, great stuff there. Okay, let's see here. Uh, three things before we get into prayer. Uh, first is we have... Um, uh, our friend Shirley in Australia is asking for prayer. She's got neurological issues and great pain. And I, I've known this for a while, but she emailed this week and she's asked that we just pray for her. She's uh, still always, she's always upbeat, always, every time, even with her pains. And uh, she has other family sicknesses and unsaved people too. And she just asked for prayers are there. But uh, then we have um, my friend George has hit a brick wall with a necessary move. He's having culture shock getting back into the world because he's been kind of isolated and he says the world has just degraded since he was out in out in you know which is true mm -hmm. and uh, housing prices are high everything is just kind of coming against him and uh then um the uh jacobs were here on the 25th uh some of you may remember them if not you know we show you their photo but they were here on the 25th and sat right over here and uh they were planning on coming back to the church before going back home, and they had to go back home early, and uh, Jake Jacobs died on the 25th of March, a month later. So um, just want to keep Sue, his wife, in prayer for the loss of her husband. It just just made it to the uh, church and uh, never even got back before, uh, you know, he just passed away. So was it was an unexpected Yeah, it was an honor meeting him, so, you know, that's that's life. And uh, lot, yeah, very sad. For I mean, us. Just yeah. I mean, but ties in perfectly with this week and what it signifies. So, you know, despite our loss, we have a better hope in Christ. But um, yeah, got those things and lots of other prayer requests. Of course, we want to pray for what goes on with the church in the next month, as far as uh, what's going to happen with next door. You know, I'm not a defeatist, but it just feels like the county is. You know, they've made up their mind, and so unless something really changes, we got some petitions circulating around Golfgate. Most of the people in Golfgate do not want more bars, so we'll see what happens. It's not a big deal. But how did the meeting turn out? It, it was, was a terrible meeting. meeting. Had nothing to do with with what. Yeah, it was just a waste of time. Except if it goes back that a lot of people from the church were there, yeah. maybe they'll think about it. Yeah, but we have another meeting on the 25th, which is is for this particular purpose. So It's on the 25th and this 25th of the 24th of April. 20, April. And then they'll make their decision probably at that meeting. But okay. anyway, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the chance to come and to pray to you and to praise you and to thank you for all of the many blessings of this life. We thank you for the life of Jake Jacobs and uh, that we got to know him even if it was for a short time and we certainly pray for Sue and we pray for Shirley in Australia and George 
who uh, are having their own troubles and trials. And we pray for Blake, who is moving today, and and we pray that his new house will be a, a blessing and that things will go okay and smooth with this move. And uh, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for all the good things that you've blessed us with, and we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and petition you for these things. And we also thank you for this wonderful word that tells us about our more wonderful Jesus. And we thank you for what this week signifies tomorrow, the the cross of Christ and the terrible mourning, mournful situation that happened in Israel 2,000 years ago, but the joy that came just a few days later and what it signifies in our own life is that death does not have the victory, but Christ does and we are guaranteed to rise because of him. And we thank you, Lord, for all of these things and we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, let's see what happened. Today is the 29th, I think. So we'll see what happened on the 29th of March, which is, uh, or is it the 28th? 29th. 29th. Yeah. 29th. Let's see here. He didn't rush to help, it says. In the winter of A.D. 32 through 33, a man named Lazarus fell sick. He lived in Bethany on the far side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. They were among Jesus' closest friends. When Lazarus became sick, his sister sent a message to Jesus, Lord, you are the... The one you love is very sick. One would have thought that when Jesus received the message, he would have rushed to the side of his sick friend, but instead he stayed where he was for two more days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, that means he is getting better. Then they, they thought Jesus meant Lazarus was having a good night's rest, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. Then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Then for your sake, I am glad I wasn't there because this will give you another opportunity to believe in me. Come, let's go see him. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had been in the grave four days. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she ran out to meet him. <clears throat> Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus told her that her brother would rise again, Martha responded, yes, when everyone else rises on the resurrection day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, like everyone else, will live again. They are given eternal life for believing in me and will never perish. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him, I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus then went to the grave it was a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus said. Martha objected and said, the smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you will see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. To everyone's astonishment, Lazarus came out, bound in his grave clothes, and Jesus commanded, unwrap him and let him go. Many people believed in Jesus when they witnessed this miracle, but some went to the Pharisees to report what Jesus had done. In response, the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin to discuss what they deemed a troubling situation. They feared everyone in their nation would become followers of Jesus, causing the Romans to send their army to kill them all. Then Caiaphas, the high priest said, how can you be so stupid? Why should the whole nation be destroyed? Let this one man die for the people. 
Because the religious leaders were plotting to kill Jesus, he and his disciples left Jerusalem and went to a safer place. Shortly thereafter, it was time for Passover when every Jewish man was required to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus and his disciples went back to Bethany to stay at the home of Lazarus. The second day he was there, March 29th, AD 33, the people learned of Jesus' arrival and flocked to see him and Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. The chief priests then decided that their only solution to the popularity of Jesus was to not only kill Jesus, but Lazarus as well. Reflection, why do you think the religious leaders wanted to kill both Jesus and Lazarus? A mighty miracle had taken place and they wanted to do away with the evidence. And it says in John 11, this prophecy that Jesus should die for the entire nation came from Caiaphas and his position as high priest. He didn't think of it himself. He was inspired to say it. It was a prediction that Jesus' death would be not only, not for Israel only, but for the gathering together of all the children of God scattered around the world. Praise God. Really wonderful. Okay, let's see here. We have... Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, Affirmation, and Articles of Affirmation and Denial. We did Article 1 last week. Article 2 says it's very similar to last week. It's just more expansive. We affirm that the scriptures are the supreme written norm by which God binds the conscience and that the authority of the church is subordinate to that of scripture. Okay, that's obviously a uh, indictment against Catholicism and many other churches which believe that they have authority over scripture or that they can reinterpret scripture or that they can prophesy and add to scripture with their own prophecies. It's, it's a terrible problem in the church. I mean, that's not just Catholicism saying that we have authority over scripture. We have churches all over the world that claim things in Jesus' name. The Lord told me this and the Lord told me that as if it is a divine uh, word for them to get their congregation to do something or to believe something. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. Um, the uh, authority of the church is subordinate to that of scripture. We deny that church creeds, councils, or declarations have authority greater than or equal to the authority of the Bible. Plain and simple there, good good uh, affirmation and good denial, and uh, we, we don't have any creed or such thing here at the church, but you know, some churches do. I think it's a bad thing to do because eventually people will uh, uh, start holding to that like denomination after denomination has. They, the word of God suddenly becomes relegated to secondary status. And then when they want to have something like homosexual preachers or teachers or whatever, they just amend the articles which have nothing to do with the word of God. And that becomes the church policy. They completely skip over scripture. So I'm uh, glad that they did that for their second article. And from there, Romans 10, 12. Here we go. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Okay, before I give any commentary on that at all, what did he just say again? Read it one more time. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Okay, so... There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. What does that tell you? That they are, well, they're, they're two different things. Two different things. But they're of equal quality. But they're of equal standing, we'll say, okay. before the Lord. And they're two different things. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The fact that he says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile means that there are Jews 
and there are Gentiles. Everybody got that? Right. There's, there's no time that Gentiles become Jews. Just today, somebody sent me this uh, uh, video. It was 24 minutes long. I didn't watch the whole thing. It just I don't have time for it, but I, I watched quite enough to understand what was going on as there were these four black guys that believe that they are the Jews of the world. And uh, yeah, there's there's a, a, a subcult out there of uh, just black people that believe that they are the chosen people and everybody else is Edomites and all this crazy stuff. But anyway, they started out with what they would do is they, uh, somebody walked up and he's a Christian. And he knows he's saved, but he doesn't have good theology or, or good understanding of scripture. And they start twisting scripture. The first thing they do is they take you to Galatians and they bring in uh, Father Abraham. And we are sons of adoption through begins with F, ends with faith. Yeah, faith, okay. So uh, we're sons of adoption through faith, right? And then they go back to Romans here, 9 through 11, where it's speaking of Israel, and they say that the Israel is the the adoption, the glory, and the, you know, they talk about the adoption, okay? So what they've done is they've made what's called a category mistake. They've taken one form of adoption, which belongs to Abraham, and they've applied it to the adoption because of you know the, the promises and all that which we'll get to in a couple of verses but the point is who came first Abraham or Israel Abraham. okay Abraham so what he's speaking of is an entirely different type of adoption than the adoption under the law right he redeemed Israel out of Egypt he gave them the law and they you know all this kind of stuff all right so you have to be careful when you listen to people that are in cults if you don't know scripture well because they will twist scripture and you have no way of identifying where the error is and all of a sudden you're starting to question your own theology because you don't know where the error is but he's citing scripture and then he's talking about it like you know but that's how cults are you go to the Job's witnesses and they take this verse completely out of context and they say this and then they say and next thing you know your your theology is completely confused very important to be in the Word of God, to read it every day, and more importantly, to study it. It's one thing to read the Word, it's another thing to study it, to think on it, to ask yourself questions as you're going through it, and you know, not to take one person's opinion. Charlie Garrett will give you some information tonight, and I may or may not be correct. Go out, listen to other things. Which one is true and why? I had somebody else send me an email yesterday, yeah, yesterday, about um, a, a guy named N.T. Wright, who is a Reformed theologian, and uh, actually, uh, maybe not even Reformed, but he's a replacement theologian, and he says that the true Israel is, guess what, us, and he defends it from Scripture. Exactly what we just saw in the words you just read, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, means that there are Jews and there are Gentiles. We cannot be Israel. We are not the Jews. It's terrible handling of scripture. I just thanked him for the video, and I said if I get a chance to watch it, I'm gonna watch it. It's just, it's not correct that we are Israel. That is incorrect, and it is very bad handling of scripture. I don't care how convincing the argument is, it is incorrect if you just simply look at verses like this that we haven't even analyzed yet. So be careful what you take in, take in everything with the thought of first, checking it out and then after that saying I agree with that or I disagree with right. that and, and the only reason why they okay what how it had to be worded in order for them to believe what they believe it would have said something to the effect of there is no difference between people yeah there, like, there's know, there's no Jew there's no Gentile right there's no difference between people period and left it at that 
the very fact, if, if we're going to see it again, as I said, in Galatians, you got no Jew and Gentile here. Well, guess what? In Galatians, it says there is neither male nor female. And I bring that one up a lot, Jew nor Gentile. The very fact that he says that, if somebody would just stop and think it through, there are obviously males and females in this church. Now, if you don't want that, just go over to the Episcopal Church on Siesta Key, and there are no males and females anymore. It's all just one lump of whatever. But here in this church, it's obvious that there are males and females. And in the same sentence that says Jews and Gentiles, he's making distinctions, even if there is no difference. Difference in Christ, a distinction in nature, though. Or he wouldn't use the categories. Exactly right. So here we go. Our notes on <coughs> Romans 10, 12. The New King James Version, which I didn't read mine, but I'll read it now. Uh, For there is no distinction. You said difference, right? Okay, no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. The New King James Version, along with a few other translations, choose the word distinction for this verse. Some use, as we just heard, difference. That's why when you're using words, you got to be careful because people use some semantics and try to make an argument. It's a false argument. So that's why uh, if you have a distinction here, then you need to use difference here. You, you have to show that there's something else going on, okay? Um, although similar intent, distinction and difference, the word distinction is probably a better choice in order to avoid confusion. Jews and Gentiles are different. The very nature of them in this verse implies a difference, one which continues throughout the New Testament. However, in both Jew and Greek, concerning matters of sin and salvation, there is no distinction. Concerning sin, Paul has clearly shown that all are bound under sin's power, control, and thus sin's penalty. We've got to go back to Romans 3 to see that, but um, I'll show you that. Romans 3 verse 9 says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And there he uses the same terminology, Jew and Greek. So obviously there's a difference between them, okay? Here we go. And so, all require the same mercy and deliverance from sin. Concerning salvation, he has shown that the law could save no one because they were unable to meet its requirements fully. I talked about that last week as we were closing out the sermon. I've talked about it in particular and in detail. And then this week, it's in the sermon again. It's, I'm going to repeat almost the same closing argument that I made last week because it's an important thing that needs to be said. It's a Resurrection Day sermon, and so we need to make sure that we remember that. Okay, But as the law was meant for the Jews, then this must, and in fact it is shown to mean that both Jew and Gentile are bound under the same plan of salvation those under the law and those who are not under the law. As Paul noted in verse 10, 4, roger that. Okay, everybody got it. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, right? Okay, Jesus Christ is relevant to both Jew and Greek in regards to salvation, and none may be saved apart from him. Everybody got that? both Jew and Greek, in regards to salvation, nobody may be saved apart from Jesus. The consequences of sin and the ineffectiveness of the law are highlighted in Scripture to take us by the hand and lead us directly to the throne of grace where Christ Jesus sits, Jew and Gentile both. There's no difference or distinction, we should say, in them. They all require the same salvation. 
In him is found the freedom which grants both pardon from sin and justification before God for all men. As he then says right in this verse, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Is everybody here, I just want to ask this, and I know I'm going to get the right answer, but is anybody here unsure if Jews are saved by the law of Moses or if they're saved by the blood of Christ? Everybody here is sure, okay? Because there are teachers out there, we've got one in Texas, that says that Jews are saved under the law of Moses. They're saved in anticipation of Christ's sacrifice, and even to this day, they can be saved. And there are a lot of people. That's called dual covenant theology. You're saved by one covenant or another covenant, depending on if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Yes? For that to happen, wouldn't there have to be two gods? Yeah, because yeah, absolutely. But it, not only that, it would completely, completely diminish the need for Jesus Christ if you could be saved under the law. Completely. Because as it says, you know, the man who does these things will live by them. Okay? It's a promise. It's a guarantee. And as we've already showed, uh, I don't know if it would say there would be two gods. Let me think about that before I give you a definitive answer on that. But it would show that God is waffling yes. and that it, definitely that. If there's one God, he would be a waffler and then it wouldn't be the God of creation. But it would certainly show that uh, that the cross of Christ meant nothing. If one person could come to God <laughs> apart from Christ's sacrifice, then there would be no purpose for that sacrifice. Okay. Anyway, um, so we have to be careful with that particular uh, 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 discussion. And the reason why is because there are a lot of really good, sound Christians that watch that guy. And I've had people where I've cited exactly what he said on my law, and they get angry at me, and they say, well, he's a great teacher and a great preacher. Well, I don't care what you think about him. This is what his doctrine is. Go and check out his doctrine, listen to what he says, and then I'll attach the video, and they just it's like it goes right over their head because they would rather follow a person than follow the truth of God's word. Oh, well, he probably didn't mean it that day. Well, that's his doctrine. You can pull out the, the newspaper articles where they've interviewed him, and that's what he says. So you have to be really careful with who you listen to because sometimes people say things that are just very confusing. And you think, well, that sounds right. And, you know, I'm going to go home and I'm going to forget about it. You need to follow these things because eventually doctrine goes way off like this. Anyway, I, I just it's just one of my pet peeves is that there is no such thing as dual covenant theology. There's no such thing as being under the law of Moses for certain things today. It's all done. We are in Christ, and we are not under law. In fact, sin is not being imputed to us, 2 Corinthians 5.19. If sin was being imputed, that would mean that we have a law over us, because by the law is the knowledge of sin. If we don't have sin being imputed to us, then we are not under law. We are under grace. God has forgiven us in advance of everything we will ever do, and when we receive that, it is done. Okay? Another argument for eternal salvation doesn't matter what you do. I don't care if you walk away from the Lord. You're not under law, and therefore sin cannot be imputed. And it is by law that the knowledge of sin and the imputation of sin. Okay? Well, you just We could go on and on with the, the thought process. But anyway, um, uh, kind of talking about this and heaven and hell and salvation and not salvation, uh, I don't know if you heard about the, uh, the uh, hippie that uh, drowned off of, uh, off of Siesta Key last night. No. Yeah, he was too far out. Oh, you stinker. <laughs> there is a, one plan from God, which is all-inclusive, and it involves the same Lord, as Paul says, for all, as is noted in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. 
Yet for us, this is 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live, okay? And the same Lord over all is rich to all, as Paul says in this verse. The verb rich indicates wealth, and it is the same general thought as the adjective used in Ephesians 2, verse 6, where it says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. The sense is that God has a superabundance of his graces which flow to his people, to all who call upon him. This final portion of the verse eliminates this mercy being bestowed upon non-believers as many claim. It is an infinite source of richness, but it is limited in its directional flow. God, his grace will go on and on, his mercy will go on and on, but it is limited in where it goes. As I've said, all people, all people on this planet are saved through the cross of Christ. Potentially. Potentially. That's right. All people. All right. Only those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are actually saved. God's grace and mercy would extend to the vilest person on this planet. Absolutely. Okay. But it, he will not do so if they do not repent and call on Jesus. And when I say repent, I'm talking about a change of mind of who Jesus is, okay, or simply by calling on Jesus. Some people have never heard who Jesus is. So you don't repent on who Jesus is because you don't know who he is, and somebody walks up and says, do you know that you can be saved through the shed blood of Jesus? Well, who's Jesus? Well, let me tell you about him. Then there's no repentance involved. It's simply an assumption of the knowledge that comes in. The word repent in Greek is metanoia, to have a change of mind, okay? You can't have a change of mind. You can't repent until you hear the news and receive it, and then your mind is changed, unless you have rejected Christ in the past. And some of us did that for years and years and years, right? In that case, you need to repent of who Jesus is, and then you receive Jesus as your Savior, and it's done. Okay, so be careful with the word repentance. Too many people, and I love him, but he, he gets it a little backwards as Ray Comfort when he witnesses to people, if you know who I'm talking about. Great evangelist, very good thinker. He's got his uh, theology down very sound as far as witnessing to people, how to convince people that abortion is wrong, all of these issues, but... He stands there when he's talking to him and says, you need to repent of your sins. You can't repent of your sins until you know who Jesus is and you receive him. And then you repent of your sins. If you have to repent of your sins before coming to Christ, that means that you are going to cure yourself before going to the doctor. You don't do that. You go to the doctor because you have a problem and you need him to cure you. You receive his grace, his mercy, his salvation, and then you will change your mind as you grow in sanctification. You may have things that you don't even know are wrong with you until you come to Christ and start reading his word. You can't repent of something you don't know is wrong. It's impossible. Repenting for us in this dispensation would be solely on who Jesus is if you have rejected him in the past. Okay, if somebody doesn't like hearing that, I can't help you. You cannot use Acts 2.38 
for justification for saying you must repent. Let's go there really quickly because it's something, you know, the uh, Church of Christ uses. This, a lot of other churches do too. They say you have to repent of your sins in order to be saved. Acts 2. Acts 2 verse 38. Okay. That's an old joke that they say, Baptists say you don't need to do this. And then the uh, Church of Christ says we do and we're going to kill him with an axe in 238s. Right? And so you remember it that way. I got an axe, I'm going to kill him. I got 238s and I'm going to... Anyway, there you go. Axe and 238s. But... Then Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have to repent, right? That's what it says. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Israel, who had nailed their Lord to the cross. They had rejected Christ. So what is he asking them to do? Repent of having rejected Christ. Exactly what I was just saying about you and me. If I grew up hearing about Jesus, I said, I'm not going to have anything to do with that guy. I don't. Then I have to repent of that attitude and I have to receive him. That has zero, not one thing to do with the Gentile-led church age. It wasn't even initiated until Acts chapter 10 when, what's his name, Uh, uh, Peter went down to Cornelius' house in Acts 10, and then even afterward, the Jews still didn't get it until Acts 11. He had to re-explain everything that happened while he was down there. So please make sure that you remember Acts and 238s, or Acts 238, is not a verse ever to be applied to this dispensation of time unless you've already rejected Christ and you've crucified him to the cross and said, I don't care. Then you have to repent of that. Everything else is just simply coming to Christ, receiving his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness, and then the repentance comes as you grow in him. Okay? Anyway, it's it's an important, it's a very important precept to remember. Life application on this verse. God isn't doing something behind the scenes. Okay? We want to make sure that we remember that. For those who have never called on Jesus, he is not doing something behind the scenes. I'm going to save him this way, or I'm going to save him that way. Okay? He doesn't have a secondary plan of salvation. Or as Tom's shirt says when we go out to the project sometimes, what does it say? No plan B. Right, okay. Nor does he favor one group above another, Jew above Gentile, which has become a huge, a chronic problem in Christianity today. He's Jewish. He knows what he's talking about, and you're just a Gentile, and you have no idea what you're talking about. Well, let me tell you what. I know lots of Jewish people that would disagree with him. Now, which, where's your conundrum, right? Okay, you got somebody with sound theology like Sergio, and then you get some guy that's a Messianic Jew that says you have to observe the law of Moses. Which one are you going to believe? Will you believe somebody that says what New Testament theology says? That's what you do, okay? So just because somebody is Jewish or just because somebody wears a, a little kip on his head and he, he has a beard and, oh, I'm starting to sound like me. Anyway, <laughs> don't listen to him, all right? You have to listen to the Word of God in that alone. You know, you can't be awestruck with certain preachers or teachers or, uh, you know, uh, genealogies. I'm a Jewish or I'm from Russian Orthodox or I'm whatever. All that matters is the Word of God and nothing else. That's it, okay? Um, so here we go. One is either in Christ or not in Christ. There's no two other categories or other three other or four other or any. You're either in Christ or not in Christ. It's an important message for the people of the world. Let's be sure to speak clearly about it. For those who call on him, the richness of the glory of God will be an eternal delight. For those who don't, not so much. Okay, Romans 10, 13. For anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, four. 
whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Four, okay? Once again, you have a preposition. Remember your prepositions. Romans 10, 13 should be a memory verse for you. When speaking to others about the Lord, it's simple, it's concise, and it reveals the very heart of the gospel. It is an abbreviated form of Romans 10, 9. Here's what I'm going to read you, 10, 9, and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, confession with the mouth is not a work. It's a confession of the mouth saying, I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ, okay? For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, obviously, if a person is mute, he can't confess with the mouth. He's saved by belief in Jesus Christ. But the confession is an outward profession or uh, acknowledgement that you have received Jesus Christ. He's got to hear it, right? And then once he hears it, it's done, okay? So anyway, it's it, that's what it says. I'm not going to go beyond Scripture and say that you, you don't have to proclaim Jesus Christ. It says right there that you do. It's not a work. It's simply an acceptance of Christ. So verse uh, 13 then says, Forever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, there's nothing lacking in Romans 10:13 when compared to Romans 10:9. Only a simpleton would call on a dead Lord. We talked about that last week. Calling on the name of the Lord implies that the one is calling on the risen Savior Jesus. And so Paul begins with four. This is an explanatory uh, phrase which should be taken in the entire context of the current paragraph. This is now the fourth time in a row Paul has used this connector. I'm going to read him to you. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Four, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Four, the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Four, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is rich to all who call upon him, Four, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The first four explains the confession and belief. The second four explains the righteousness leading to salvation. The third four refers back to Paul's discourse on the Jewish state before God and then ties it in with the plan of righteousness, which is for all people. The last four, which we're in right now, reaffirms what was said in Romans 10 verse 9 explaining that whoever truly means whoever, right? There are no exclusions. We don't make exclusions in the Bible. The guy that sent me that video, these black guys that were standing there and proclaiming their false gospel were excluding everybody. They were making all these exclusions, saying that we're the Jews and, you know, we have this out. It's just crazy, okay? I've dealt with these people on my posts in the or videos in the past. That's why I know their theology. I didn't need to watch the whole video because I know exactly what they believe. It's, once again, it's a cult. It's just people that have taken this verse here and this verse here and they put together this really bad theology and they've called it the plan of salvation. It's the plan of loss of salvation, or I shouldn't say loss of salvation, it's the plan of no salvation. Anyway, um, uh, and so we don't miss what God is doing. Paul cites Joel 2, verse 23, right uh, now. 32. What's 2? 232? Yeah. Okay, let me go there. Joel 232. Okay, and I may have read it backwards because I do have, as you've probably noticed 10,000 times, I have dyslexia. And so I. Oh, yeah, I, I read things backwards all the time. All the time. So, anyway, Joel 2, what did you say, 32? 
It says, um, and oh yeah, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. And the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Okay, so there you go. And it is. It's, I, I said 2.23 in here, and I just checked it, and I had it wrong, so I'm glad you said that. Peter cited the same verse in the same manner back in Acts 2.21. The incredible aspect of this isn't that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord, Jehovah, which he is. The inconceivable point is that so many deny this obvious truth. Either it is so, or the Old Testament pictures given by God were downright misleading. Everybody understand that? Joel was speaking about who? Was he speaking about Jesus? No, he's speaking about the Lord, Jehovah, yod heh vav heh right? The guy that, uh, the, the uh, entity that showed up and revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. That is who he's speaking of, okay? And then Peter uses that verse in Acts, and then Paul uses that same verse here and says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, are they speaking about Jehovah or are they speaking about Jesus? Yes. They're speak yes, the answer is yes. They're speaking about the Lord who is Jesus. And so once again, we have to be very careful always to have our theology down properly. I'm going to change that right now so I don't ever make that mistake again, 232. Okay, there we go. And um, so the answer is that the Lord Jesus is the Lord Jehovah of the Old Testament. Don't make that category mistake by misunderstanding that. Oh, I did it twice. Okay, uh, let me make make a change right there, right now, okay? And then uh, let's see here. Um, and his use of Joel 2.32 is not without precedent. Oh, I've already said that. Peter said it. Okay, so, um, uh, but when one grasps this, I think I missed one sentence here. Yeah, either it is so or the Old Testament pictures given by God were downright misleading and the New Testament applications by the apostles would then be false misrepresentations of who Jesus is, because they're saying that this Lord is the same Lord as the Old Testament. So either we have a confused Old Testament system of prophets and a confused system of apostles who are misrepresenting who Jesus is, or actually Jesus is the Lord, okay? But when one grasps this premise, that Jesus is the Lord, Jehovah, then the Bible fits beautifully into an amazing picture of God's love for his people. So I'm going to read to you my thoughts on these words. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever. It is unlimited in scope. Any person, anywhere, any color, any language, any background. Anyone. Okay? Calls. The limiting factor for whoever. One must actually exercise their faith calling out from their wretched state in petition to God. So whoever is everybody, but calls makes it a limiting everybody. Only those who call, right? On the name. The Bible's concept of a name is that of identification with the person or entity. Thus, for example, when Avram and Sarai's identification changed, their names were changed to reflect what had occurred. They became Avraham and Sarah. Okay, everybody see that? There's now a new identification, a new name. That's why it says in the book of Revelation that we will all be given a new name, right? Everybody's going to thank goodness because my real name is just, I can't stand it. Anyway, yeah, oh boy. Anyway, um, I had somebody get angry at me. They, they sent me an email and they said, um, I can't believe a pastor would conceal his true identity. I said, I never concealed my true identity. I put it on videos at least 20 times. I put it on the video. 
if anybody wants to read it, then they'll see it on there. Say, I'm not concealing anything. It's I have not been called my real name since I was like three. Nobody, not mom, not my brother, nobody calls me that. I went back to her and I said, I'm not concealing anything. I told her what my real name is. I said, would you want that as your real name? Why did you get named that? Because my oldest brother's name is Evan. I know. My middle brother's name is Ethan, right? Well, Grandma, when I was born and I was given my name, which matches those two, right? She said, I can't remember the first two, and I am not calling him that. She said, his name is Charlie. So from the day I was born, my name has been Charlie. Not concealing anything. If anybody wants to know it, it's on the website. It's, you know, it's all over the world, but I just don't like the name. But nobody, one person in this world calls me by my real name, and that's a girl that we were in the same crib together. She was born on the 4th of July, yeah. And she was right down the road, a couple days older than me, and they keep us in the same crib together. She still calls me by my real name. Nobody else does. Okay, anyway, so a name is an identification. We will all be given a new name, okay? Don't worry about it now. I'll tell you later. I'm not saying it on the video. Uh, Don't shout it out, anybody. Anyway, um, so where are we? Okay, so on the name, we have our identification of the Lord are the next words. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Only when one understands who Lord is from Joel 2.32, which I did it a third time, Joel 2.32. I do. I've got dyslexia. In the sermon, you follow along on the notes, and you'll see I have words backwards all the time. I just assume you... No, I just, I I read things backwards all the time, numbers especially. Um, uh, Joel 2.32, they can appreciate what Paul is stating. Lord, in that passage, is the tetragrammaton, the four-letter designation for Jehovah, or Jehovah, right? yod Hey vav Hey. That's called the tetragrammaton, the the four letters, or the, you know, anyway, tetra is four, grammaton would be uh, letters, grammaton, okay, so tetragrammaton, that's why it's called that. Anyway, so... um, Let's see here, uh, Jehovah. Calling on the name of Jehovah then is to identify with who Jehovah is. This concept is found, for example, in Proverbs 18. So let me see, Psalms, Proverbs 18. All right, Proverbs 18, <laughs> verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Okay, that's verse eighteen ten. Because Paul is speaking of Jesus in verse 9, right? Uh, he says, uh, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, verse 9. Then with clarity of mind, we can know that Jesus is the incarnation of Jehovah. He is the God-man, and we are to call on him as Lord. Everybody got that? Yes, yeah, so okay. he's, he's, he's adding this looking like it's a second layer, but he's actually making sure the Jews know exactly. That's exactly what he's doing. It's not a second layer. It is... Well, primary. He said it once and twice. It's well, like, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, repetition. Yes, absolutely. It is. But he's not making two distinctions. No, no, no. I thought that's what you were saying. No, yeah. No, absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. Okay. And then finally, whoever calls on the name of the Lord might be saved, right? Oh, no. It says will be saved. Going to heaven is not the purpose of being saved. We talked about this last week. Going to heaven is a result of being saved. Being saved implies from from something. God's wrath is on the people of the world because of sin. Jesus came to rectify this. By fulfilling the law and shedding his blood for our atonement, salvation from God's wrath is now available to all who by faith call on him as Lord. That is saying that that person that died on the cross of Calvary is in fact the Lord of the Old Testament. 
And the Lord of the Old Testament is, guess what? He's the creator. He is God. And I am acknowledging that fact. And when that I come to that understanding, then I will be saved. That's why when the Jehovah's Witnesses say to somebody, Jesus is not God. He is not Jehovah. They cannot be saved because you must call on the name of the Lord. It's very clear that he's tied it in with Joel 2.23, who is the Lord of the Old Testament. It's just Lord is simply a word. It's a word that identifies something. Lord can mean master, you know, like, oh, my Lord, I'm speaking to the baron down the road at uh, the castle. Lord can mean different things. Mm -hmm. He is very specific that you are calling on the name of the Lord, who is Jehovah, Jehovah, Yahweh, however you want to call him, because we don't know the actual pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton, the divine name. Anyway, life application. Wow, we're burning this up today. <clears throat> Take time to memorize Romans 10, verse 13. Think on it and be able to explain the who, the what, the why, and the how of what this verse reveals. The when is not stated, but it's any time during this walk. As we don't know our last day, it should not be a delayed when. Share the gospel with urgency of a soldier on a battlefield. Now it is explained somewhere else when it says, now is the time of God's favor. Mabel's got it. Today is the day of salvation. salvation. Why? Because we don't know when we're gonna die. That hippie that was too far out? I know that's a bad joke, but anyway. I, I, and I fall for it. Well, that's okay. I fell for it this morning at 7-Eleven. So there's a guy that shows up at 7-Eleven every single day, and he's so serious. And then the next thing you do, you find out that he is making a joke again. He said, you hear about the guy that drowned out there? I'm like, no, what? He says, yeah, he was far out. I'm like, oh, oh. So I got like five people at the mall today with that. One of them had already been gotten by him. So anyway, uh, he his name is Lance. So the next time I see him, I'm going to say, I got a terrible boil. And he's going to say, oh, that's... I'm, I need it lanced. I'm just going um, to throw it back at us. Anyway, yeah, he's 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 just a great guy, but he got me on that one. Surprisingly, after like 400 jokes, you think I'd, but I don't. Anyway, okay, uh, verse 10, 14, please. Before I go further with that. Yes. If anyone were to say your name during the... Uh, I Please don't. It would be, you could eliminate it. I could, but I'm not going to. You so I, No, I can't, I can't eliminate it because I don't edit these unless... Please, go ahead. Verse 14. <laughs> right over your head. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I just got it. Thank you. I did get that. That was... Yes, thank you. Oh, there we go. That was very good. That was exceptional. Wow. Okay, go ahead. How then can they call on the, on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Okay, very similar in words here. I'm not going to reread it again. It's wonderful, wonderful verse, though. We have just seen that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, right? In the need for and means of salvation. We all need the same salvation. We all follow the same means of salvation. The Lord is rich to both Jew and Greek and that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Understanding this, Paul will now demonstrate in a logical sequence how the plan of salvation is relayed. From this chain of thought, he will redirect to how Israel's unbelief is not due to a lack of the plan, but is due to a failure to acknowledge it, okay? The consequences for what have happened to Israel rest solely and completely on Israel. If they were right with the Lord, if they were obedient to the Lord, 
the things that have happened to them for the past 2,000 years would never have happened. They would not have happened. That is his unconditional guarantee. It is his promise. I know, and I've said this before, and I always get somebody upset when I do it. I know that when I say the Holocaust was their fault, people say, well, they would not have had a Holocaust if they were right with him. Now, I've been to the Holocaust Memorial. I've seen the faces of the people that died. I've been just as moved as everybody else. But when I left there, and I've said this several times in Bible studies, I'll say it again. When we walked out of there, I said to mom, who was standing right next to me, I said, there's something missing from this Holocaust Memorial. And she said, what? I said, they need to have a copy of Deuteronomy 28 published in every single language of the Jewish people's dispersion posted on the front of this door. And until they do that, they will never be right with the Lord. They have to acknowledge their national guilt before these things stop happening. And they're going to continue to happen. Just because God has graciously and sovereignly put them back in the land does not mean that they are through with being persecuted. It's going to be much worse, much, much worse, and two-thirds of them are going to be destroyed before they get it right. They cannot look at anybody else. They can't blame the Christian. They can't blame the Muslim. They can't blame the Russians. They can't blame the Nazis. They can only blame themselves, and I know that sounds cold, but that's what the Bible teaches. The Lord personally said it in Leviticus 26, first person. I will pursue. I will do. And every word that we went through last week in that sermon, it's very clear what happened to them has been reenacted or or acted out in human history. And the Lord said it in the first person. So I, my last prayer every night, every night of my life is for Israel. I don't bear them any grudges. I'm not anti-Semitic, but I am pro-Bible. And the Bible says that these things will come upon them because they rejected him. And even today, what did we see in the prophecy update last week? They've appointed their first gay mayor, and they're all going crazy how wonderful it is. Listen, until they get this kind of stuff straightened out, they are, they are destined for bad times. So um, there's no distinction in Jew or Gentile. Paul has given us this logical distinction, okay? Um, from this chain of thought, he will redirect to how Israel's unbelief is not due to a lack of the plan, but it is due to a failure to acknowledge it. The sequence of questions given by Paul can be interpreted in a couple of ways. One way is that Paul is stating them as objections to his previous argument. In essence, how can we be blamed for not responding to the call when the call hasn't been provided? This view of these questions is held by the noted scholar, Albert Barnes. Here's what Albert Barnes says. He says, the ground of injustice which a Jew would complain of would be that the plan made salvation dependent on faith when a large part of the nation had not heard the gospel and had no opportunity to hear it, okay, or to know it. Another way of viewing these questions is that Paul is rhetorically asking them in order to stimulate action. In essence, you have heard that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can this come about with them without them hearing the message? This is the more common interpretation of these questions. Rather than being a defense at a trial, they are an impetus to share the good news. Be assured, the defense view is used by people all around the world, Jew and Gentile alike, to demonstrate that it is unfair to condemn people who have not heard the gospel. I've heard it 10 million times. I, out at the beach, I had that sign, Bible questions answered, and they would always, almost every day, somebody would come and ask that question. Well, how can God condemn uh, somebody in Nigeria a thousand years ago that hadn't received the gospel? Okay, it's the most common thing in the world. 
How can he do that? That makes God unjust. He's unfair. No, we sinned against God and we inherited our first father's sin. We are under a federal head of Adam. There is no injustice in God. He would be unjust if he saved that person without the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Barnes is right in how these questions could be used. In answer, one doesn't need the gospel in order to be condemned. All people are already condemned, John 3.18. One needs the gospel in order to be saved. Therefore, there is no unfairness in God. The gospel message is grace. That's why it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's grace. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Grace is, oh, and I just said that, grace is by its very nature undeserved. The defense view cannot stand when presented to God. No person can go up to God at their judgment and say, you have to save me because I didn't hear the gospel message. Can't do it, all right? It is not possible that we can question God's righteousness. He is perfectly just, he is perfect, perfectly righteous, and when he condemns, it will be because it is the right and necessary thing to do. The opposing thing, as I said, if he saved somebody apart from Christ, then he would be unjust. That is not the God of the Bible, okay? To, um, to stimulate to action view is also used, and rightly so, by those who understand the need to share the gospel. The defense view is actually a non-starter. Then it is incumbent on believers to get the word out because it is God's avenue for it to be transmitted. And so it is. We talk about that with, with <coughs> Reformed theology. They say that you are predestined in order to be saved, God regenerates you, and then you believe, and then you're saved, okay? You were actually born again in order to be saved. That's completely false. Somebody has to get the message out. Somebody has to speak that message. And if it's not spoken, then they're not going to be saved. The Great Commission was explicitly stated by the Lord in several ways. These can be found, and I'm not going to read them, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Okay, everybody knows those verses, very famous verses. Mark 16, 15, he gives the commission there. Luke 24, 46 through 47, he gives the Great Commission there. It's, they're all different uh, wording of it. One is focusing on this, one is focusing on that, but they are all the Lord commissioning people to go out and give the word. And finally, in John 20, verse 21. And at the ascension, he does it again in Acts 1, verse 8. We'll just go to Acts 1, verse 8. We'll, we'll skip the other ones. If you want to read them, go back and read them. They're at the end of each gospel. All you need to do is just turn to the last page of each gospel, and he'll give you those. But Acts 1, verse 8, last thing he says before he's taken up, I'll start in verse uh, 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Here they are. Last words of Jesus before he goes up. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's speaking to the disciples the apostles at that time, and he tells them that you will be witnesses. You need to now go out and get to work. Don't worry about the kingdom age. He didn't say there wasn't a kingdom age coming. He didn't say that he would not sit in Jerusalem, literally, as the Old Testament says he will. He didn't say any of that. That is coming. But before that day comes, you guys go out and start getting this word out. And as the doctor said, they were at the, uh, what was the name of the conference last week? Jesus Film Briefing. Jesus Film Briefing. They have got this out in thousands of languages around the world. They, the Jesus film is a film that has evangelized more people probably than Billy Graham. It has done an amazing work. People can hear the gospel in their own language. They may have never seen a 
video or a, a, a movie ever in their life. And what they do is they take them out into the jungle sometimes and they show these people that have never seen a movie Jesus in their own language and they break into tears, they receive Jesus. It is a wonderful thing. The gospel is still going on to this day, being sent out to the ends of the world. Thank God for people that are willing to do that. Well, okay. Also, yeah. these verses right here refute exactly what that person on the beach would ask you. It's like, yeah. how can he not be loving? It's like, look, he sent his he son. He did his thing. That's right. And now he's saying, go out and spread it. You know, go out and spread everywhere. the message. It is the like most so. loving thing in the world that he did by sending his son to die for us. And then you get people that are so perverse that one, I can't remember his name, but he says that God is a cosmic child abuser because he what? sent his son to. Yeah. Uh, just absolutely crazy. Right. This is God incarnate. He took the punishment on himself. Okay, they what? That's that same person probably is for abortion. Well, I'm sure, probably. probably for abortion. But absolutely crazy people out there that that twist what God has done to such an extent that they they chase people away from the Lord with stupid little cliches like that or stupid little sayings. When in fact, it's the most loving act in all of human history. All right, he didn't have to save anybody. He could have just wadded us all up with Adam and thrown him away and said, "I'm done." You know, I've done my part. He didn't. Okay, so um, the commission then is given so that salvation may be realized in both Jew and Gentile. It is a message without favoritism, but rather one that is given for whoever calls on the name of the Lord. But, verse 1, or I'm sorry, my point 1, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? That's what Paul is asking. Paul's first obvious question Man has the knowledge of God already ingrained in him. This is evident from the discussion in Romans chapter 1, which took us a couple weeks to get through, and also from such passages as Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3. Okay? It's a wonderful psalm, but it is something that is ingrained in all people. We all know that there is a God because it says right there, um, I'm still in 18, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God. We know that. All we have to do is look up and say that God is there because there is this glorious working, this efficient working, this thing that is perfectly timed where the moon and the sun are always doing the right thing and there are eclipses on certain days and we can calculate the seasons, etc. Everything works perfectly. The heavens declare the glory of God. Then the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. In other words, people can say there's no God, but they are denying the obvious. They are denying absolutely what they see every single day when they get up and get out of bed. Every day, every night when they go to bed, everything is timed perfectly. The love between a man and a woman. And when you break away from that, you have these feelings of guilt. Obviously, there's something going on. We know from everything that we do that there is a God. Okay, so, however, this knowledge is what we call natural revelation. Okay, it's also called general revelation. It's God generally revealing himself to us. And it is merely sufficient to condemn man. You cannot be saved through natural revelation. I don't care how long you search out the cosmos, how much information you get from the atom, from the electron, from the quark, from the sun, from the, you know, the red star, giant stars out there. Doesn't matter how much information you get from creation, you can never be saved. It is merely sufficient to condemn us. God's word, the message of Jesus Christ is what we call specific or special revelation. It is sufficient to bring man to salvation. 
But being specific, it is not universally known. Okay? That's what Paul is saying in this verse. It is not universally known. It has to be transmitted. It must be sent out in order to be believed. How can man call on the Lord if they haven't believed in him? The answer is, he cannot. And so more is needed. Point two. And how shall they believe in him of who they have not heard? That's his next argument. If calling on the Lord presupposes belief, belief implies a heart acceptance and not just a mental assertion. Okay, everybody got that? It's in the heart where we believe. Then how can that belief be realized if one doesn't hear the word of faith? It's not possible. It cannot happen. No one can believe in the existence of a green dribackle bug because no one has ever heard of such a thing. I just made it up when I typed this that day, okay? You can't believe in something that doesn't exist. Proper belief that such a bug exists must be grounded in a truthful message based on true evidence. And the gospel message is no different. How can someone accept the gospel if the gospel has never been presented to them? Everybody got that? It's impossible. Are we Jim and Julie? Good to have you here. Tell us real quickly, tell us where you're coming from and uh, uh, how long you'll be here and all that. Just Tucson, Arizona, making our way across down to visit family in Miami. Okay, I got to say that again so they can hear. They're from Tucson, Arizona. I remember the Arizona, but I couldn't remember the place. And they're driving all the way across the states and they're going down to Miami to visit family. And they said they might be here this evening. So, And uh, you're only going to be here tonight and then heading on. Is that right? Okay, well, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for making this effort. You didn't say that to me. Well, yeah, because you don't count. <laughs> uh, and he's here a couple weeks a year, and we see him every year, so that always makes him angry. He's here half a year, but anyway. Um, okay, so um, where? Okay, so we have the bug that doesn't exist. Same thing with the gospel. If somebody doesn't hear of something then they can't be saved. You can't believe in that particular bug if you've never heard of it. Okay, three, point three. And how shall they hear without a preacher? One cannot hear a message unless there is another to transmit the message. Everybody got that? Very simple. You, it, the message can't get there if you don't have somebody to tell it to you. Okay? Words do not generate themselves either in oral or in written format. They must have a source in order for them to come about. And so the gospel cannot go forth without someone to share it. This rhetorical question then needs to be taken to heart by every saved person who cares about the lost. We have these to hand out to people. We've got other tracts in the back room. We've got a whole wall of tracts over here. If you don't want to open your mouth, leave it on the table. That's what they're there for. We need to tell people because if you withhold the message of salvation, they ain't getting saved. I don't care what Reformed theology says. They ain't not getting saved unless they hear the message. Yes, God's will cannot be thwarted, but he allows man the responsibility and the privilege of telling other people about Jesus Christ. It ain't going to happen any other way. And that is why I, I've said this. I know people get angry at me, and I get an email every time I say it. I don't care. I will never change my stand on this. You hear these? I've, I've heard it at least 100 times. Well, there are Muslims that are having dreams about Jesus, and they're getting saved from that. I don't believe it. This is what the Bible says is how we are saved. The Bible, which was written by the Holy Spirit, says that this is the means and mode of salvation. He's not going to do our end around about what he has given us. This is his word. The Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. I do not believe in extra biblical revelation that allows people to get saved apart from God's word. He wouldn't have spent 1,600 years, 40 
people's lives and all of that time compiling the word into what we have now just to say that's not important I will do it other ways God doesn't work that way this is how he does it and Paul would not say these words if it was true I have never never once actually talked to any person that said yes I was a Muslim in the Sudan and I I was saved apart from the Bible and nobody had to tell me I just became saved absolutely not never ne now I don't I don't dismiss that people have dreams about Jesus you know they may have heard somebody talking about Jesus at a bar that night and then they go home and they have a dream about Jesus and say gee I need Jesus well he heard the message and he processed it in his night and he put the two together and said I had a dream about Jesus but other than that it, it does not happen I'm sorry people that believe that can believe it I'm not going to argue with them I do not believe that I believe that the Bible tells us that we need to get out there and actually do something in order for people to be saved. That's what it says, and the Lord wrote it. So there you go. That's just my stand on that particular issue. Okay, so um, uh, where was I now? There must be a source in order to come about. It must be shared. This rhetorical question then needs to be taken directly to heart by each saved person. In the ultimate sense, each person who speaks the gospel is a preacher. And someone must preach in order for the message to be heard. But there is also a truth that not everyone is actually a preacher. We can't deny that, okay? We all have something in us that limits us in one way or another from speaking properly, okay? The next verse will deal with that, okay? Not everybody is a preacher. We're all obligated to go out and talk about Jesus, but some of us are just not eloquent enough. We're not trained in theology enough. And so, as I said, the next verse is going to deal with that. Life application, and then we'll go on to that next verse. No one will have a sound defense at their trial of condemnation. Nobody. But those who call on the Lord have a certain hope, a pardon for their offenses against the holy God. How can we turn a blind eye to those who so desperately need to hear the good news found in Jesus Christ? Okay, now that's not, as I said, that's not to put a guilt trip on anybody that you didn't speak to somebody about Jesus and therefore it's your fault, okay? The next verse is going to take care of that, but in the end, you have to do something or you are not doing your job. So go to verse 10, 15 and we'll analyze that. And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It stops there? Okay, well, mine's a little longer. Um, and they, how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Okay, so you have a couple different quotes in there, Isaiah 52, 7 and Nahum 1, 15. Anyway, I have people that are sitting facing me right now, and they might not agree that my feet are that beautiful. <laughs> it is a metaphor. It doesn't mean that my feet are actually beautiful because I'm a preacher. It means that uh, uh, the one who's carrying the message, the sound of the feet, the feet bringing the person to them, that's what he's talking about. Okay, so here is your kind of out. And I will say before I read this, that, and I may say it during this commentary, so then I'll, you'll have heard it twice, but uh, something I heard a preacher say years and years and years ago down at the legalistic church I st uh, was at, uh, Temple Baptist, he said, you can either share the message with your purse or with your person. He says, it's your choice. Well, and you think about it, that's exactly the way it should be, because not everybody can preach, not everybody right. is qualified, right. some people just don't know what to say, yeah. but you can support a church or a missionary or somebody, an evangelist, that will do that. But nobody has an excuse to do nothing. 
Nobody. Okay. So there we Oh, you know what? If you don't have money to support them, then you just get on your knees and you pray for them because that's about as effective as anything that you will do. But one way or another, you need to be supporting a ministry somewhere. Okay. Paul's progression of thought concerning the transmission of the gospel continues with, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? Everyone who is a saved believer should be a voice and a witness for the good news. However, the truth is that just as not everyone is plumbing skills, oops, we got to stop for just a second. I'm a few minutes early. Oh, that's okay. Come on in. Oh, I have a feeling. Hey, hey. hey. Just put it down right there. Hey. Yeah, just set it down there. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful time now. Yeah, we, uh, we still had some money from the people in Australia to uh, get us some more pizza, and I thought today would be a good day because it's uh, Resurrection uh, Weekend, so we're having pizza for resur Resurrection Weekend. And uh, Tom, I didn't know if you needed salad today, so I got one. If not, whatever. Okay, whatever. If you don't want it, if uh, not, then I'll take it home for Hitiko for dinner or if somebody else wants it, whatever. But uh, I, I just didn't know your status today. So, okay, we'll go back and we'll read the uh, last thing that I just said. Um, not everybody... Uh, has plumbing skills. Not everyone has, has sound communication skills. And because of this, certain people are more effective at relaying the message than others. Even though this is so, there is also the axiom, and here it is, exactly, you can preach with your person or you can preach with your purse. There you go. So everyone who believes the truth of the gospel certainly has some ability to promote the gospel. Even the poor widow who can give but two mites. A preacher can't pre preach unless he is sent, and someone has to be willing to send him. It is difficult to comprehend those who attend church week after week after week after week and who don't support their preacher and the ministry. They are benefiting from his schooling, preparation, and life blood, and yet they take without giving. And I'm not making an appeal to give to Charlie Garrett. I'm saying that this is every church everywhere in the world from the first church all the way to the last one that closes before Christ comes. Everywhere. There are people that simply do nothing. Okay? And that's the way of the world. But it should not be that way. If you look at the cross and you say, gee, Christ did this for me and I'm willing to sit on my hands and just feel good in church for an hour and a half a week. I did my job. It doesn't work that way. Okay? So... Missions, which you know we love missions in this church, cannot go forward without missionary funding. Ray and Jess Willett are still looking for money. They've got a long way. They've only got 37% of their funding, which is surprising because I didn't think they'd be that far yet. But they've got, the last time I heard from 37%, and they'll be back here on the 15th of April to make another appeal. They need people to support them, to give their lives away for the gospel of Christ, to get the word out to people that have never heard it, Okay. So um, they can't go without funding. Teachers who teach should be supported for their time and effort. These are obvious truths which are often simply disregarded. One verse from the book of Galatians. There's only two verses in the entire New Testament about giving. That is it. There's nothing else. There's nothing about tithing. Tithing is out. Galatians 6 verse 16 says, um, that's not what I want. 6, 6 is what I want. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Okay, that's one of them. The second one is give as you prosper. That's it. That's your New Testament guidelines. The Lord doesn't put a guilt trip on you. He doesn't mandate anything. He just says, take care of this task, which is going to go on for now 2,000 years. Okay, that is what the Bible asks you. Okay, so um, uh, where is it um, are disregarded? 
in today's world. They're a means of spreading instruction to even wider audiences. Websites, email, YouTube, Facebook, etc. are all means of sharing and receiving instruction. How many sit and absorb volumes of information by these avenues and yet never return with the gift of gratitude to the one who put forth the effort, the time, and the expense of preparation and transmission? Paul notes the needed care for teachers. Here it is. I just cited it. I'm not going to say it, cite it again. Galatians 6, verse 6, teaching and sharing. Okay. In 1 Timothy 5:18, while citing the law, he repeats, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And Jesus, using the same thought, said to the, this to the disciples. He said um, he had sent out a wor- uh, worker is worthy of his food. That was back in Matthew 10, 10. It was under the law, but it's the same precept. People can't go out and do the job unless they receive something from it. When a person is a farmer, I think this is coming up in a uh, devotional or a sermon. I can't remember. Anyway, uh, I, I just sat down and thought it through. Is you know, when a farmer farms, what's the very first thing he does with the food that he reaps? He sets some aside for his family. He doesn't give it all away, right? He keeps something for himself, right? He's got to have that. And then he sets something aside for his animals that do the work, right? And they even, an ox shall not be muzzled while it's, you know, uh, treading out the grain. That's, and Paul even uses that and he says, is he caring about an ox? No, he's talking about an object lesson for people to understand that you need to take care of the person who's doing the labors. And um, I hope you'll turn that off. That's really annoying. Um, so um, uh, labor is worth his wages. And uh, then there's one more thing that um, uh, I've completely lost my train of thought. But, oh, yeah, after he takes care of himself and then after he takes care of uh, his animals, then what does he do? He does one more thing before he gets rid of one grain of wheat Seed to sell. Seed for next year. Seed for next year. Very Absolutely. Good. A person that does not save up for next year is foolish. And a person, a for example, a pastor who gives away everything that he has for his congregation. I'm not talking about himself because he should give himself away. But if he gives away everything he has and he has nothing in store, then he hasn't taken care of his own family, he hasn't taken care of his, him, his own self, and he will suffer. You need to be wise and you need to be prudent. In the Bible it says, save for your children's children, okay? Everybody should be saving, everybody should be responsible in these ways. I know that's a little bit of the, of the diversion, but you need to make sure that everything in your life is prioritized, okay? So, uh, Galatians 6.6, 6, 1 Timothy 5.18, Matthew 10.10. 10. One final thought on being sent there must be a divine commission on the sender. There are many preachers and teachers, and yet their doctrine does not correspond with or properly handle God's word. A divine commission will be seen for what it is when it rightly divides the word of truth. It must be centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and it must cling to and boast in his cross. The cross is the central point of the faith and yet it is often dismissed in an attempt to not offend. I had somebody send me emails about that this week. You know, they don't want to preach. Here's what he said. He didn't want, uh, uh, in his church, they did not want to have communion on Easter Sunday. It was their regularly monthly scheduled communion. They do it once a month. And the pastor said, I don't want to do that because we might have new people in the church and I don't want to offend them. And I thought, what a complete dolt. I, I, I mean that sincerely. We got the church that I was ordained at, and when a new pastor came in, one of the first things he did was to take down the cross, the sign made a cross. He took it down. He 
took off the whole top part. Now it's just a sign, right? That, that, that's absolutely crazy. Offense. The cross is an offense, according to Paul. If you're not willing to take a little bit of offense because of Jesus, then you have your priorities wrong. Okay? So, um, where is that? Um, uh, a divine commission will be seen for what it is when it rightly divides the word of truth. It must be centered on the person of Christ. Okay? The cross is the central point of the faith. It's dismissed, dismissed and people don't want to offend. Okay, but the resurrection was not possible without his death first. Can't have a resurrection unless you first die. When evaluating preachers and teachers, never fail to evaluate them based on the message of the cross. As Paul says in the book of Galatians, may I boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing, okay? Um, after communicating the need for preachers to be sent, and in support of this thought, Paul cites Isaiah 52 verse seven, and which is also found in Nahum verse 115. As it is written, he writes, as it is written, shows that what he is saying finds a support within the Hebrew scriptures and will now find its fulfillment in the New Testament church. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. Paul equates Isaiah's words directly to the good news of the gospel. Isaiah was speaking of the affliction and bondage of the people during their times of captivity. But he spoke of a time of release from those things a time when the Lord would comfort his people. After his introduction, Isaiah moved into his suffering servant passage, which spans Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. These verses detail the coming abasement and exaltation of the Lord Jesus, the good news. So how can somebody be offended in that? I don't understand. We can give all kinds of sappy sermons about how your life is going to be better, how Jesus wants to have a close and personal relationship with you, and on and on and on ad, ad nauseum. But we won't talk about the cross. We won't talk about the blood that we shed. We won't talk about the, what was necessary in order for us to be saved, and that saved means that we're being saved from something. I don't understand it. Now, I'm not, I, you know me. I don't like preaching on hell. I don't like bringing in the subject. It's just not my thing. Some people, that's all they talk about. But I'm not going to shy away from it. And the fact is that it was Jesus' death that kept us out of that place. We were all destined to go there. How can somebody not talk about those things? It is those feet, those feet which proclaim this wondrous message which are termed beautiful. It is the faithful preacher of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord who truly brings, as it says, glad tidings of good things. It should be noted that a bearer of bad news in his days would have traveled long distances carrying his message. For example, if he were in a battle line, he would be instructed to run to the king or to the high priest with how things were going. Such a herald would wear the lightest shoes possible, probably open sandals. He may even run barefoot if his feet were calloused enough. By the time he reached the one he was heading for, the herald's feet would be filthy. They would bear the dust and possibly even open wounds of the run. But the beauty of his feet was in the message, not in the feet themselves. The feet which labored so vigorously would be considered as lovely as a spring flower to the one who received the good news. And such is the case with the preachers and missionaries who rightly profess the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their feet would appear as precious as the finest gold and even more so. Go back, think in your life to the time when somebody came up and told you about Jesus, if there was a specific time. 
when that person, when you were at a cafe or whether you were doing something and he just said, let me tell you about Jesus. And you think about that wonderful, precious moment that you came to know Jesus Christ. You would say those were some pretty beautiful feet. It doesn't matter how ugly they were, right? Life application and uh, a showy message by a fashionably dressed orator is worthless when placed side by side with a herald of the gospel who is dressed in old clothes and worn out shoes. Be sure to tend to those who instruct you with gifts and notes of appreciation. The word of God is the most precious treasure we have. Don't withhold your gratitude for those who transmit it. Now, I typed that commentary because that needs to be typed because that is what Paul is relaying and it's something that people that read the commentary someday must know. I don't need anything in this life. The Lord has provided everything. If you give, you give, and that's fine. I, you know we don't ask in this church. We don't pass a plate. We don't monetize the videos. We pay our taxes when we don't have to pay our taxes. I want everything to be in that way with this church. If you send something, I'm very grateful. If you don't, I'm not bitter, okay? This was typed and it was explained today because this is what people are responsible for in whatever church they're in. There are people that just watch these studies and they have their own churches. They need to make sure they take care of their own churches. There are people that you know uh, support particular missionaries and they need to make sure they support their missionaries. That's what it is. This is not an appeal for me to be given something, okay? I want to make sure that that's understood. The Lord has blessed me. I have four part-time jobs that I do every single day of my life. My wife works, and the church has always been able to pay its bills. Uh, we had a lot of bills this past month. We have Sergio that's ordering new parts and stuff for the system so that it stays up to date, right? And we have a certain account that Sergio and I keep that is for that purpose. And, and when we need something, we can just immediately use that. He, he has access to it and he can order what needs immediately. This all goes on behind the scenes, but it got really low over the past week. And guess what? Somebody put something in there today for it without ever being asked. The Lord always provides. So it's just really wonderful. And uh, I, I just, I'm very grateful for what people do give, but that is not the intent of this class, okay? This class is to instruct you on what is right. Uh, we don't have time for another verse. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get it done in that short amount of time. So we're going to close a couple minutes early, plus the pizza smells like it needs to be eaten. So um, uh, we'll really quickly have a prayer, and then after that we'll, uh, we'll have something to eat, and we'll thank the Lord for that. And um, I will also, because tomorrow is Good Friday, and because there are so many people that uh, – uh, are watching hopefully tonight I don't know that for sure but I would assume that the the streaming is working there are people out there I would want to wish all of them a happy and a wonderful Good Friday remember the cross of Christ it is the defining moment in all of human history taken together with the resurrection and when Paul writes about it I think it's in Romans 4 he ties the two together as one event the cross and the resurrection so I would wish you a, a very reflective day tomorrow and a wonderful wonderful Resurrection Day on Sunday. If you attend with us, we'll welcome you. And if you go to another church, please worship the risen Christ. He did all of this for you. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Don't forget Steve as well. Steve. Oh, that was my other thing. We have a person that we do missionary work with every Saturday when he is in town. He's from Fort Wayne, Indiana. He comes and visits and he always goes to mission work. And his mother, he had to leave Sarasota early. He won't be with us at mission work on Saturday because his mother had a uh, uh, stroke She's in a coma, and she will not last the rest of the day. And uh, he, they don't think she'll last a full 24 hours, and this was as of yesterday. So 
uh, if, when you say your prayers tonight, pray for Steve and his family as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and to worship you, to praise you, and to study your word, which is what this class is for us to study. We thank you that we have this opportunity. We thank you that um, uh, your word is so precious and it is so clear about these issues. Some things are difficult. Some things uh, we're certainly going to not get right. And so I would pray that each person here would go to other sources and check them out and come to a right understanding of where I have failed in this. But uh, I, I thank you that we have this class. I thank you for each person that attends it. And we just want to thank you above all for the cross of Jesus Christ and what it signifies in our lives. And we want to remember that today and through tomorrow, what he did for us. And we want to thank you that it did not end in his death and burial, but praise to you, O oh God, that he came out of that grave to justify us and to give us a 100% guaranteed avenue of salvation and eternity in your presence. Whatever that means in its fullness, we anticipate it and may that day be soon. Come Lord Jesus, amen. amen. Okay, let me back this up and say goodbye to everybody here. Uh, uh, let's see here, break, break. Okay, there we go. Everybody have a wonderful uh, uh, Resurrection Sunday if you don't come to join us. And we love you, and we hope to see you again next week. Take care. Okay, we got this, we got this. Okay, you get some.